On his march back to Gergovia, Julius Caesar has received reports from messengers that his camp outside of Gergovia is under attack by a massive Gallic force. Only two Roman legions are struggling mightily to defend a camp meant to be protected by six legions. By the time Caesar receives word of this, many Romans have been wounded by arrows, javelins, and rocks, while the Gauls have seemingly endless supplies of manpower to refresh their forces with. And a big reason the outnumbered Romans are even able to keep the Gauls at bay is the artillery the Romans have, which Caesar says had been extremely useful against the Gallic attacks. At the end of the first day of attacks, Fabius, the legate in charge of the camp, is busy fortifying the camp and preparing for a new series of attacks the next day. That night, is when Caesar receives the, we'll call it an SOS message from Fabius. And Caesar knows that time is of the essence, and that if he doesn't get there soon, the camp will fall, and with it, two of his precious legions will be exterminated. So the second Caesar receives this call for help from Fabius, he quickens the pace of the army. Marching through the night, they arrive back at the Roman camp, before dawn, just in time, crisis averted, for now at least. There's no end to the stressors for Caesar. Now, a quick reminder. In our last episode, the Aedui, one of Rome's staunchest Gallic allies in Free Gaul, went a little wild and started murdering and torturing and enslaving Roman citizens in vengeance for Caesar having massacred their cavalry, and their nobles. Only this massacre of cavalry and nobles by Caesar was fake news. It never happened. And when the Aedui realize this, they send envoys to Caesar to clear themselves, as Caesar says. But when you've done something really horrible to someone else, there's always going to be that part of your brain that feels just a little bit paranoid that the person you wronged might try to seek vengeance on you. Many of the Aedui feel this way. They think to themselves that there's no way Caesar forgives this one. He may be a forgiving guy, but even Caesar must have his limits, and he's going to march over here sooner or later and just start executing people who took part in these massacres of Roman citizens. So for these people of the Aedui, at least in their own minds, making up with Caesar is not really an option. So these people send envoys to other Gallic tribes to negotiate joining them in the war against Rome. Now, it's when Caesar arrives back in the Roman camp after that nighttime march that Caesar receives the envoys from the Aedui, and presumably that is when he learns of their massacre and enslavement of Roman citizens. And even though Caesar says he was aware that they were simultaneously negotiating with other Gallic tribes to turn on him, still he tries to make peace with them, telling them that he doesn't think any worse of their tribe for the folly of the common people, and that his goodwill towards the Aedui is undiminished. 
Now, this is really just a last-ditch effort by Caesar to keep this alliance alive, even as it death spirals. No good will come of lashing out at the Aedui and making their choice that much easier to turn on Rome. So, despite Caesar's kind words to the Aedui, he says in reality he expected a fairly serious Gallic uprising, and he has become concerned that his army might be surrounded in hostile territory with the Aedui wavering like this. And because of these concerns, of being surrounded by the enemy, Caesar decides to withdraw from Gergovia. But here's the thing. Withdrawing from the enemy in ancient times isn't so simple as it sounds. As we've talked about before in the March of History, a lot of times ancient armies are just acting on a sort of animal instinct. If one side retreats, the other side assumes they must be scared or cowardly, and so chases after them. And if you are the side retreating, and your own troops aren't disciplined, well, retreating can get in their heads, meaning your own troops' heads, and they may begin to believe that the enemy must be superior, or else, why are we retreating from them? It's one of those situations where perception, regardless of if it's accurate, can easily become the reality. And to be clear, this sort of mentality isn't ubiquitous in ancient warfare. There are exceptions. During these civil wars in Spain, Caesar encounters troops, Roman troops, who have no issue attacking and then running away and then attacking again. That was the custom in that theater of war. The Parthian horse archers that fought Crassus are another example. But none of these cases I just mentioned are the strategic withdrawal of an entire massed army. That's a different story. In general, in ancient warfare, when armies are massed and facing off against each other, and one side begins to retreat, it's read as fear. Certainly it's that way in Gaul especially when you've begun to put a city under siege and then you give up on that siege and begin to retreat. So all of this is to say that Caesar has to be very mindful of all this in withdrawing his army from Gergovia. And Caesar is aware of this. He's aware the Gauls will have a propaganda field day if the perception is that they've chased off Julius Caesar and men will flock to Vercingetorix's cause in even greater numbers. So Caesar is determined to get some kind of minor victory, even a symbolic victory, before departing, so he can claim to have inflicted a defeat on the Gauls and then have moved on, rather than having retreated. It's a way to save face, yes, but, as we said, in a world where perception can quickly become reality, saving face is important not just an exercise in pride or egotism. So as Caesar mulls all of this over, he begins to tour the fortifications of the smaller of the two Roman camps. You'll remember this camp is on the hill that Caesar had taken at night, and he had then built a fortified camp on that hill, which he then connected to his main camp. Well, as Caesar was touring this smaller camp to oversee its fortifications, he notices something. A different hill that ascends up to Gergovia's city walls, which for days now had been covered in Gallic soldiers, is now nearly empty of Gallic soldiers. 
So Caesar interrogates some deserters about this, and they tell him there is yet another hill next to Gregovia, which Vercingetorix and the Gauls are terrified that Caesar will try to take. Therefore, Vercingetorix has removed the men on the hill that Caesar is looking at to reinforce this other hill. Caesar then talks to his scouts, and they confirm this, that this other hill is now packed with Gallic troops. So after learning all of this, Caesar comes up with a plan. That night, at midnight, he sends some of his cavalry to ride around the hill that Vercingetorix and the Gauls are so worried about, and he gives his cavalry orders to make more noise than they normally would when riding around this hill. All of this is done to confirm Vercingetorix in his suspicions that Caesar is indeed trying to take this hill. And in case Vercingetorix wasn't already convinced, once morning comes, Caesar sends large numbers of the army slaves out of camp riding mules and pack horses. He even dresses these men and their mounts up to look like real cavalry, and at least in my translations of the commentaries, calls them muleteers. So Caesar tells these muleteers to behave as much like cavalry as possible. He also adds some real cavalrymen into this force to add to the illusion. Now this motley force then has orders to ride to the area of the hill Vercingetorix has been reinforcing by a roundabout way. The Gauls in Gergovia can see all of this. After all, Gergovia is on high ground. They can even look down from Gergovia into the Roman camps. But the Roman camps and troops are far enough away that the people of Gergovia can't make out details. So yes, they see some cavalry leaving the Roman camp, but they can't tell that it's really just a force of slaves riding mules. So the Gauls grow more concerned about an attack on this hill. Next, Caesar sends one of his legions to follow the muleteers. But as this legion is passing through some woods on low ground on their way to their destination, Caesar has them halt. Now the Gauls in Gergovia become even more concerned. They saw the legion follow the cavalry, they watched it go into the forest, and now they've lost track of it. Where'd it go? What's Caesar planning? And so their suspicion grows, and they act on this suspicion by moving the entirety of their force to the hill they expect Caesar to attack. All of this means that the hill Caesar is really focused on is now nearly empty. So Caesar starts moving his legions up from the larger camp to the smaller camp that is closer to this hill he's looking to attack. But rather than marching his troops in battle order, he has them moving in small groups, seemingly without purpose. He even has them cover up their emblems and battle standards. And this is also that the Gauls looking down from Gergovia will not be tipped off to the attack. And once his army had gathered in the smaller of the two camps, Caesar calls his legates together, each of whom was given command over one legion, and tells them the plan. He stresses to them that they are to keep control of their men and to prevent the men from going too far forward in eagerness to fight or for booty. After this, Caesar gives the signal and his troops start climbing the hill. Meanwhile, Caesar sends the Aedui, who are still working with him at this point, 
to climb the same hill but from a different direction and to meet the Romans at the top of the hill. And about halfway up the hill, the Romans encounter a six-foot wall of piled stones made by the Gauls. This barrier is largely undefended by the Gauls, so the legionaries easily climb over it. However, undefended as it was, climbing this wall may have disordered the Roman formations. Now just past this wall, Caesar says the hill was filled with sparsely defended Gallic camps, which the Romans then attack. And they move so quickly in attacking these camps, they catch a Gallic king taking an afternoon nap in his tent. And this king barely manages to escape half-naked on a wounded horse. Now at this point, Caesar claims he had achieved everything he had set out to achieve, winning a minor, almost symbolic victory as a cover for his strategic retreat from Gregovia. So he orders a retreat to be sounded. The problem is that most of the legions don't hear the trumpet that sounds the retreat. You see, Caesar is with his favorite legion, the 10th, so of course they hear the trumpet and they stop advancing. But there is a gully between the trumpeters and the other legions, and the sound of the trumpet isn't carrying well over this gully. So most of the legionaries keep on marching towards Gergovia, having never heard this trumpet telling them to halt. Now, some of the Roman officers do end up hearing this trumpet and try unsuccessfully to restrain their men, but the men just keep marching anyway. Now, this is a real breakdown in discipline in a Roman army. Caesar says that his men were overexcited by the flight of the Gauls that they had encountered thus far, and were hopeful of a quick victory, and were overconfident due to their past success, feeling that there was nothing their courage couldn't achieve. And here again we have that sort of animal instinct, where when one side runs, the other side instinctively chases, almost compulsively chases. And when these legionaries reach the basically undefended town walls of Gergovia, the people of Gergovia spot them and go into a panic. People on the far side of the town hear this uproar, and they think the Romans are already in Gergovia and begin to flee the town altogether. Then some of the Gallic women of the town gather on the wall, and in a tragic scene, try to delay or appease the Roman soldiers in any way they can in the hope that they and their children will be spared by the soldiers. Caesar says of this in the Gallic War commentaries, quote, Married women hurled down clothing and silver from the wall, and bearing their breasts, stretched out their hands to beg the Romans to spare them, and not massacre women and children, as they had done at Avaricum. Some of the women even lowered themselves by hand from the wall, and gave themselves to the soldiers. End quote. Like I said, it's a tragic scene that pulls at your heartstrings. One of the Roman centurions of the 8th Legion, a man named Lucius Fabius, then tells his men that he's been inspired by the rewards Caesar gave out to the first men over the wall at Avaricum. And now he wants to be the first man over the walls at Gergovia to win similar rewards from Caesar. So he refuses to allow any of his men to climb the wall before him. He has three of his men then boost him up onto the wall, and he is 
the first man on the apparently undefended walls of Gregovia. He then reaches down and is able to hoist up some of his men up onto the wall with him. Meanwhile, the Gallic warriors who had massed on a different hill, expecting Caesar to attack there, begin to hear all of this commotion happening in the town. Then, a flood of reports come in, claiming the Romans had already captured Gergovia. Apparently, Vercingetorix doesn't believe this report, and he ends up sending the Gallic cavalry ahead to the site of the attack, and orders the infantry to follow as fast as they can. And when they arrive at the base of the wall, every Gallic man takes up a position and starts fighting wherever he happens to arrive. Their numbers swell, and soon a large host of Gallic warriors is on the scene fighting the Romans. The Gallic women who, just a short time ago, were holding their hands out in supplication to the Roman troops, now begin calling on their own men, and unbraiding their hair and bringing their children into view of the men. Now these were apparently Gallic customs to inspire their men to fight bravely and to remind them of what they are fighting for. Very soon the Romans are getting the worst of it in this battle. They're outnumbered by the Gauls, they're disorganized, they don't have ladders to scale the walls, and they're tired from climbing the hill to get up to Gergovia. Meanwhile, the Gauls are able to send in constant supplies of fresh reinforcements. This is not a situation Caesar ever wanted to put his troops in. And speaking of Caesar, he can see all of this happening from a distance where he had stopped with the 10th Legion. And as Caesar watches, and the number of Gauls grow in this battle, he becomes anxious for the safety of his soldiers. So he orders the legate in charge of the smaller Roman camp to bring out cohorts that had been held in reserve there, and station them at the base of the hill on the right side to cover the Roman retreat that is inevitably coming. Caesar then moves a little closer to the battle along with the 10th legion. He doesn't send them into battle, though. This is not a battle Caesar wants to fight, and he doesn't want to send more of his men into a hopeless situation, so he's stuck there just watching, waiting to cover the retreat of his men that will inevitably come. Things are quickly spiraling out of control when suddenly the Idawi appear on the Roman right flank. Remember, Caesar had sent them via a different route to climb the same hill and to meet the Romans at the top, well, here the Idawi now appear, and the legionaries involved in the battle see this, and they panic. They don't realize that these Gauls are their allies. They think that they've been outflanked on their exposed side, which is the side they had their sword on, the right side. And the Idawi, for their part, have their right shoulders bared, which is the agreed-upon sign with the Roman army that allows the Romans to tell which Gauls are allied to them and which ones are not. Essentially, this is supposed to allow the Romans to tell which are the good Gauls and which are the bad Gauls. But in their state of panic, the Romans think the Gauls approaching on their right flank are really just enemy Gauls pretending to be allies in order to sneak up on the Romans. Right as the Idui approach and the Romans go into a panic about this, the centurion who had been the first man up on the walls of Gergovia, Lucius Fabius, along with the other men that he had helped up onto the wall, are surrounded by the Gauls and killed. 
The Gauls then tossed their lifeless bodies headlong from the walls of Gergovia. Fortune may favor the bold, but so does death. Now another centurion by the name of Marcus Petronius had been trying to break down the Gallic Gate at Gergovia. Now he too was overwhelmed by the Gauls and gravely wounded. He then turns to the legionaries under his command and says to them, quote, Since I cannot save myself along with you, I shall at least take care to ensure your survival, for it was my desire for glory which made me lead you into danger. When I give you your chance, watch out for your own safety. End quote. He then launches himself into the midst of the Gauls, kills two of them, and drives the rest back from the gate. When his loyal men try to come to his aid, he tells them, quote, Your efforts to preserve my life are futile. Already my blood and strength are draining away. So get away while you can, and make your way back to the legion. End quote. Marcus Petronius then dies fighting, his sacrifice saving his men. The battle is going horribly wrong for the Romans. By this point, they're being overwhelmed on every side. They start retreating with the Gauls in hot pursuit, and it's only the 10th legion waiting there with Caesar that holds the Gauls at bay. Soon, the cohorts of the 13th legion from the small Roman camp are ordered up, and they join the 10th legion. The retreating legions from the Battle of Gergovia turn and organize for battle once they reach the safety of reinforcements. Vercingetorix Seeing the Romans now organized with Caesar at their head, decides not to press his luck any further, and the Gauls return to Gergovia. Caesar and his army return to their camps as well. The Battle of Gergovia is Caesar's single biggest defeat in his nine years in Gaul. In the commentaries, Caesar says he lost 700 men and 46 centurions. And of course, it's certainly possible or even probable that these are intentional underestimates. We'll never know for sure. And there are certainly people who think that this whole story is Caesar painting his own blunder in a way that makes it seem more like hit the fault of his legates and his soldiers rather than his own. Again, we can never know for certain. Things may have happened exactly as Caesar tells them. They may not have. Either way, it is interesting to see how Caesar reacts to such a defeat. We have often seen how he reacts to success and even adversity, but a battlefield defeat is not something we've seen him react to yet. The next day, Caesar holds an assembly of his troops and delivers what scholar Carolyn Hammond calls a masterpiece of rhetoric. He starts out by taking his army to task for their imprudence and over-eagerness in not stopping, even when they heard the signal for retreat. Interestingly enough, after he finishes chewing his troops out, Caesar starts educating them, explaining why disadvantageous ground is so significant in a battle, and even gives them an example. He reminds them of when he had to restrain them from attacking uphill to take the Gallic camp outside of Avaricum. So he's educating them, and he's giving them examples. And of course, Caesar knows the army's spirits are down, so he makes sure to encourage them by telling them how admirable their courage had been, but tempers this by reproaching them for their lack of discipline 
and assuming that they knew more about victories and outcomes than their commander did, meaning than Caesar did. Caesar even tells them that he is as eager to find level-headedness and restraint in his soldiers as courage and daring. Finally, Caesar ends his speech on an encouraging note, telling his legions not to lose heart and credit the Gauls with great bravery when really it had just been unfavorable terrain that had led the Romans to lose. This is all, of course, a great lesson we can take and apply to our modern lives on how to respond to adversity and how to lead through adversity. Caesar doesn't panic after the loss at Gergovia. He doesn't lose his self-confidence. He doesn't lose his temper either. Yes, he scolds his troops, but he also makes sure to teach them so it won't happen again and takes time to encourage them, especially after a defeat. These are real skills that can be learned from and applied to modern leadership positions. Contrast Caesar's response to Gergovia with Crassus's response to Carey, and it's night and day. Now, to be fair to Crassus, Crassus's son did die at Carey, and Carey was a much more disastrous loss than Gergovia. But even still, Crassus's troops were depending on him to save them after that first disastrous day. And where was Crassus? Curled up under his cloak in a state of shock, unresponsive to the needs of his men, his army acting disjointedly and without a coherent plan and fleeing the Parthians. And I have great pity for Crassus, who, like I said, just lost his son, I mean, really, his son had been murdered brutally, and his head had been stuck on a pike and paraded before Crassus. That is traumatizing. But in the end, Crassus led those tens of thousands of men into that desert, and it was his responsibility to lead them out of that desert, no matter how difficult things became. And maybe, if Crassus had some of Caesar's leadership abilities, some of his oratorical abilities more of his men may have survived that disaster. Getting back to our narrative, Caesar hasn't finished rebuilding his army's confidence yet. He knows that an army lacking in confidence is a liability, and that despite all of his inspiring words, it's actions that inspire the most confidence. So that same day that Caesar gives the speech... He leads his legions out onto the field of battle to challenge the Gauls. Now, in reality, Caesar's not trying to fight. He still plans to retreat. But he needs to do something to save face and restore his men's confidence before retreating. And lining up your army in battle order is a way of showing that you aren't afraid and are willing to risk the other side taking you up on your offer for battle. It's a little like challenging someone to a duel. Or, in modern parlance, Caesar is fronting. Now, Vercingetorix does march his army out of Gergovia and lines them up facing the Romans. So now both armies are in battle formation facing each other. But neither side seems willing to actually engage in a battle. And eventually, a cavalry skirmish happens, which Caesar says the Roman side wins. And at this point, Caesar marches his men back to their camp. The next day, Caesar again marches his soldiers out of camp and lines them up for battle. Again, no battle actually takes place. 
And at this point, Caesar says he felt he had done enough to check the boasting of the Gauls and to encourage his men by showing that they could stand up to the Gauls, that the Gauls were afraid to face them in open combat. Caesar then marches his legions away from Gregovia and toward the land of the Idaewi, who, until just recently, had been gleefully butchering Roman citizens. Vercingetorix and the Gauls are happy to see them go and don't bother to pursue. Vercingetorix already knows he's won his propaganda victory. Now it's time to make the most of it and spread the word throughout all of Gaul that Vercingetorix and Caesar had faced off head-to-head and Caesar had blinked. Caesar had lost at Gergovia and Caesar had run away with his tail between his legs. A story to put fire into the belly of any Gallic man worthy of being called a warrior. In our next episode, the few neutral tribes and Gallic allies Caesar has left will abandon Caesar and join Vercingetorix in his titanic struggle to throw Julius Caesar and the Romans out of Gaul once and for all. But before we go, I'd like to thank our patrons, Giancarlo, Peggy, Carrie, Scott, Laurie, Liga, and Dave. Thank you all. As I always say, the podcast wouldn't be possible without your support. And thank you to Joe for his generous contribution on PayPal and his encouraging words. This podcast is only able to continue due to generous contributions like yours, Joe. So again, I say thank you. And in case you're looking to contribute to the March of History, you can do so on Patreon or PayPal. Both links are in the show notes or summary section of every single episode. And of course, don't forget to follow the March of History on Instagram. That's at the March of History for cool history videos from around Europe and around Rome and, and everywhere else in Europe that I've been to. We also have a five-star review to read. Josh from Cape May says, Brilliant. Recommended by my physical therapist, the eminent historian, Dr. Lyle. Don't miss it. Thank you so much, Josh. I appreciate your review. And again, these five-star reviews help the March of History to grow. Because when people search for history podcasts, as far as I can tell, it lists them in order of how many reviews they get and how high those reviews are. So the more five-star reviews we can get, the more we can spread the March of History to a broader and larger audience. Finally, we have our end-of-episode quote. And this is not a quote from ancient history or even from centuries ago. It's a pretty recent one, but I think it's a great one. It is as follows, quote, Service to others is the rent you pay for your room here on Earth. End quote. And that is a quote by Muhammad Ali. And I think that those are excellent words to live by and to inspire you in your life. So thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you in episode 63 of the March of History.